0: The crackdowns we're seeing playing into an obvious restructuring of both social and home life.
1: Hello, I'm Meenakshi Ravi and you're at the Listening Post. This is where we dissect the way the media work, what gets covered and why it's covered that way. Here are the stories we're looking at this week. Beijing wants to control what it calls badly behaved superstars, out of control super fans, and monopolistic big tech. Indigenous Colombians have been toppling statues of European colonizers, challenging how the country's history is remembered. Media shutdowns and misinformation. A month of Taliban rule is leaving its mark on Afghanistan's news industry. And the Taliban has been dictating terms on what Afghan women can wear triggering some serious pushback online. Do not touch my clothes shows Afghan women in their true colors. The indications have been there for months in speeches, policy proposals, and party propaganda. But in the past week or so, it's become clear that Xi Jinping's China has embarked on a campaign that could transform the country's tech, entertainment, and media industries. Much of the party's current focus has been on regulating China's tech giants that have grown at warp speed establishing monopolies, and abusing consumer data. Officials are also asserting control over the raucous and often toxic world of celebrity and pop culture. The Communist Party has advocated for stars who, quote, uphold political literacy, moral conduct, and artistic standards. It has criticized effeminate men on screen and has sought to curb an obsessive fan culture. All these decrees have been presented as being aimed at the moral well-being of citizens. Critics are calling them an overreach of a paternalistic state. Our starting point this week is the cult of celebrity in China. This story almost reads like the screenplay for a TV drama, except that it is, in fact, very real, and it's playing out across China. On one side, you have some of the country's most popular young celebrities, actors, musicians, online influencers, with fan followings in the hundreds of millions. On the other side, a serious set of policymakers, men in suits, looking to instill some discipline and propriety on an industry that many would have thought too frivolous to attract so much of Beijing's attention.
2: For the Chinese Communist Party um, and and for the Chinese government, it has always been crucial to occupy what they call the commanding height of ideological background. So in that regard, these Regulations targeting celebrity culture and entertainment media are not exactly frivolous because there are political implications of entertainment media and celebrity culture.
3: We're starting to see more specific guidelines and in some cases like training resources being released for these celebrities and influencers, not just in terms of like political correctness, but also in terms of, you know, how they dress, how they sort of conduct themselves. It's interesting, it's not just the conduct of celebrities themselves that's been cracked down on, but also the conduct of their fans as well.
4: Culture in China can be a very active, even rabid scene. And it's developed into a subculture that is very vivid, very lively. You'll look at some of these websites and chat groups, it's in a language, an idiom of its own. And that frightens people who like order and control, like the Chinese Communist Party.
1: 2021 has been a momentous year for the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. In July, it marked its centenary. At the helm of the party and the country is President Xi Jinping. In his nine years in office, he has not been shy about his desire to stay longer in his post, even orchestrating the removal of term limits on the presidency so that he can remake the Chinese state in accordance with his vision. Over many months, Xi has been reiterating his blueprint for the next phase of China's development.
2: The
1: slew of new regulations on the tech industry and on the entertainment sector are part of what Xi calls the Common Prosperity Plan, policies to narrow the growing wealth gap in the country. They are assertive moves, but the party and the president seem confident now is their time.
5: Xi Jinping has banked a lot of not just regime support, but uh, political capital that is in large part a a result of China's relatively good handling of the coronavirus epidemic. He believes that he is now able to do some pretty bold things uh, to really fundamentally reshape uh, the coming decades through technology and through uh, the Communist Party's hold on culture, uh, through, you know, its increasing involvement in, in the economy of the state.
4: We have seen for some time that uh, Xi Jinping wants to instill a new sense of purpose and discipline and orthodoxy on Chinese culture. But I think it really began with um, a Chinese-Canadian singer, actor, general celebrity called Chris Wu, who has been accused of sexually assaulting some of his fans.
3: Rape accusations against a pop star has pushed China's Me Too movement back into the spotlight.
4: In early- I think that particular scandal perhaps escalated attention to this issue in Chinese society, but also within Chinese policymaking and the leadership as well.
1: The Chris Wu scandal broke in July this year, unleashing a torrent of vicious online attacks from his followers against some of his alleged victims. It wasn't the first time overzealous fans had created headlines in China. Competitive fandom drives online engagement and revenue for many of the agencies, brands, and studios that back China's top celebrities. However, it's led to numerous instances of obsessive stalking, persistent trolling, as well as unchecked spending by young fans on products their idols
3: endorse. At the
1: same time as all this, There have been a dizzying array of new regulations for China's online space. They affect thousands of businesses, from taxi-hailing companies like Didi to multimedia and tech conglomerates like Tencent and social media behemoths like ByteDance that own the app TikTok. On the regulator's radar are data privacy, tech monopolies, and predictive algorithms. So these are actually
2: issues that um, Western um, governments and the regulators are also grappling with facing the, the astronomical growth of digital platforms. These are companies that are really abusing their monopolistic power because they have grown into such giant digital um, platforms and they often almost serve as, as the infrastructure of many other um,
3: daily public service um, in in, in China. Users are being more and more concerned with how uh, corporations are able to uh, access and use their data, especially Tencent and Alibaba, which, you know, given the portfolio of companies within these two firms, they can make quite detailed profiles of, uh, you know, people's shopping, spending, health data, so on and so forth. So it's a thing that a lot of people in China say is long overdue.
4: Quite apart from a concern for customers, which I don't think was entirely feigned by any means, I think there's also a political edge there, a sense that these companies are getting away with this because they think they're getting a bit too politically uppity as well. And therefore, we need to put them in line and remind them that, As they go along making profits, they also have to remember what the political bottom line is in China.
1: The Chinese government's regulatory spree has stirred debate amongst citizens, investors, and international media.
6: Some are
4: calling it a new cultural revolution. Is this the second cultural revolution?
1: Comparisons with Mao's cultural revolution back in the late 1960s and 70s have abounded but they've been off the mark.
5: So I think a lot of people make comparisons between what's happening to the Cultural Revolution just out of abject ignorance. And the appeal of using such a comparison is because that is the only sort of political event of you know mass campaign that, that they are aware of. Uh, the, the Cultural Revolution actually was uh, an effort by Mao to kind of do an end run around uh, the party itself and to attack uh, the party using sort of, you know, the mobilization of young people from its flanks. The main victim of the Cultural Revolution was the Communist Party itself. Uh, and so that is clearly not what is happening right now. This is the party itself being more assertive. It is something that Xi has kind of articulated all along, a vision of of. Powered prosperity for a China led by the Chinese Communist Party.
1: This week marked a month of Taliban rule in Afghanistan, and it's becoming increasingly clear what the takeover means for the country's media.
6: Johanna Hus has been following developments. Joe, what's the latest? Well, earlier this week, Tolo News, which is Afghanistan's most widely watched uh, television news network, reported that at least 153 Afghan media organisations have ceased operations since August 15, which is the day that uh, the former government fell to the Taliban. Now these outlets include newspapers, radio stations, television channels in at least 20 provinces and media uh, workers at these organisations have cited new restrictions under the Taliban as well as economic hardship as the main reasons for uh, terminating their activities. Now the Taliban has repeatedly uh, claimed that it is committed to providing a safe environment for journalists to operate in, but these new numbers of these now defunct media organisations clearly tell quite a different story.
1: The Taliban has also been accused of barring media access to the Panjshir Valley. That's the area in the northeast of the country, which was the site of an armed rebellion, which supposedly fell to the Taliban just last week. Um, There are also reports of the Taliban killing civilians in the area, but it's very difficult to corroborate what's happening on the ground there, right?
6: Yes, and that is because the Taliban has imposed a complete communications blackout, jamming uh, both phone and internet connections. Now, they have also closed the main access road into this region, meaning that it is extremely difficult to verify any reports of uh, the killing of civilians, but even uh, the Taliban's claim that it has taken full control over the region. Now, the Taliban has justified this uh, communications blackout by uh, saying that it was needed to dissuade, quote, those who wanted to turn Panjshir uh, into a hotbed of sedition.
1: Okay, so it might not be a hotbed of sedition, but it's definitely a hotbed of misinformation now.
6: Absolutely. Take, for example, this uh, grainy video that circulated on Twitter. It was posted by a uh, pro-resistance movement account, and it shows uh, heavy fighting in a mountainous area, allegedly uh, from recent battles in Panjshir. But it later emerged that that video was actually shot years ago, most likely in Yemen, and the dissemination of these kind of fake videos definitely makes it a lot easier for the Taliban to discredit any reports that do make it out of the region, including those of uh, the killings of civilians. Now, the Taliban has told the international community to, uh, quote, take a closer look at the area to find out for themselves.
1: That would be difficult because that's the area they've closed off, right? Exactly. Okay, thanks Joe. Statues are among the oldest forms of visual media. For millennia, they've been used to send implicit messages about the kinds of people and values we should look up to, quite literally. When people tear icons down, it's most often in rejection of what they stand for. And in the 2020s, it's a tactic that's on trend. Since the killing of the African-American George Floyd in May last year, anti-racists on both sides of the Atlantic have toppled hundreds of historical monuments, from slave traders to European monarchs. But few protest groups have made as much of a tangible impact as Colombia's indigenous Misak community. As core players in anti-government protests over the past year, Misak leaders and their allies have toppled numerous statues of European colonizers. In doing so, they have ignited a debate about the country's history and the place of indigenous communities in it. The Listening Post's Daniel Turi now on Colombia's fallen statues and the legacy they are leaving behind.
0: For much of the world, deserted cities have been defining images of the pandemic era, but not in Colombia. Millions have filled the streets in successive waves of strikes and protests. What began as a movement against economic reforms has mushroomed into a mass uprising against inequality, corruption, and police brutality. Protesters have targeted the status quo itself and some of its most foundational icons.
2: Colombia,
1: la mañana, Misak, protesta, la
0: Last September, demonstrators from the indigenous Misak community began knocking conquistadors, Spanish colonizers, mm-hmm. off their pedestals. The first to fall was Sebastián de Belalcázar in the city he founded, Popayán.
7: Sebastián de Belalcázar was someone who dispossessed and annihilated our people. We see him as a rapist, a mass murderer and a land thief. So our community decided to carry out this autonomous act of decolonization. The first thing I did when I saw the statue falling was to run and hug Edgar, another community leader, because there was a feeling of victory. We remembered the struggle of our ancestors and felt the conviction
0: of being part of a historical justice. What Colombia's government called an act of vandalism was merely a warning shot. In April, protesters in the city of Cali hauled down the last remaining monument of Belalcázar A month later, in the capital Bogotá, Misak demonstrators performed a traditional burial for another conquistador, Gonzalo Jiménez de Quesada. The two men were among the mercenaries who led the Spanish conquest of the Americas. They landed in the 16th century, conquered much of what is now Colombia, and enslaved or massacred indigenous people who stood in their way. After Colombia became independent in the 19th century, Descendants of European settlers remained in charge and they told their version of Colombia's history in the statues they built, a visual medium that all
8: Colombians, literate or not, could understand. In Colombia, at the time the statues were made, we were trying to build a nation. And we built that nation on the shoulders of the conquistadors and also our independence heroes. So, these statues were about reaffirming our Spanish roots. We are reaffirming that the conquest was a valuable and praiseworthy
5: endeavour.
9: These monuments also create an image of power. They're made of bronze and so imply authority. But they're controversial because they symbolise the conquest and the genocide, the imposition of religion and the new political structures that came with it. So the statues represent severe oppression for many social groups.
0: Indigenous people have been at the forefront of Colombia's protest movement, demanding the return of ancestral lands and justice for the killing of community leaders. According to the UN, 69 indigenous human rights defenders have been murdered in the past five years alone. Activists see these injustices as legacies of European domination, legacies embodied by colonial statues. But it was the Black Lives Matter movement to the United States
2: Protesters are down and that
0: first demonstrated the power of toppling monuments as an act of protest. Last
7: year, the assassination of the African-American George Floyd and all the reactions to it was a very important moment for our struggle in Latin America. No It was important because the indigenous movement in Colombia is about two things, the struggle for territory and the struggle over historical memory. Demolishing these statues, symbols that have re-victimized us, is part of that fight for memory. It's a form of anti-colonial education.
9: Anti-colonial. It's a continent-wide movement, but in this country, it's also part of a new awakening among the socially excluded. It's about questioning symbols that represent the power of certain social groups, which isn't being shared. Toppling those symbols is powerful, because it shows that there isn't just one version of history. There are many that have been altered or silenced. Los, uh...
8: Indigenous Colombians are resentful of their defeat in the conquest and the fact that the dominant ideology took over town squares across Colombia and the world. That's what dominant ideologies do. The conquistadors were people acting according to the ethical standard of their time, and we can't judge what they did, even though in some cases it was horrible based on the standards of today.
0: The eurocentric version of the colonial past is the one that still dominates Colombia's public spaces, from statues to school textbooks to street names. Dissenting perspectives have long been confined to the fringes among indigenous Colombians and on the political left. But the protests of the past year have amplified those voices and the spectacle of falling monuments has forced the mainstream to pay attention. As media outlets cover the pros and cons of the conquistadors, indigenous leaders have used the exposure to explain their motives. The government has also changed tack, consulting with MISAC leaders and pledging to review the presence of certain monuments. But the protesters, whether indigenous or not, seem unconvinced. In June, demonstrators in the city of Barranquilla tore down a statue of Christopher Columbus. The stunt could scarcely have been more symbolic or provocative.
9: He's a controversial figure because the very name of the country stems from his name and his involvement in the discovery of America, even though we know that there were actually earlier European settlers on the American continent. But for indigenous people, he represents the conquest and colonization. And that's why we've seen Columbus statues knocked down all over the world over the last few years.
8: You can't deny that he was a great mariner who discovered the new world. And that's why statues of him were built. Just from a nautical standpoint, he deserves a monument. The academy does sympathize with the Misak protests. But we believe that no one has the right to knock down what's already there, because they are part of our history, part of who we are. It's that simple.
7: If we hadn't taken these actions, the government would not be doing anything, whether it be reviewing the presence of statues or consulting with citizens. But it isn't only about the government. We're asking all institutions to rethink how they operate and allow indigenous people to participate. We can't just be instruments of tourism or museums. We are living peoples, active peoples, who are demanding territory, demanding life, democracy and historical memory.
0: The toppling of colonial statues has triggered a debate about Colombia's history and identity that is now playing out in the country's public spaces. The culture ministry says it plans to replace the fallen monuments However, its latest move has been to take down other Misak targets in the capital. In the meantime, protesters in Cali have put up a statue of their own, the Monument to the Resistance. Colombians are watching these spaces to see where the story of what Colombia is goes from here.
1: We're going back to a story from Afghanistan now. For many Afghan women, especially those in the big cities, the return of Taliban rule has meant a reimposition of stringent limits on personal freedoms, restrictions on what professions women can pursue, whether they can study, and what they wear. The full-body veil, known as the chador, often blue or black in colour, is what the Taliban have mandated, claiming it to be Islamic dress. It has spurred protests by Afghan women across the country, and they've been joined online by a campaign with the hashtag do not touch my clothes it was started by dr bahar jalali an afghan historian and it has triggered a flood of images from professional women academics journalists both inside and outside the country wearing a range of colorful afghan clothes here are some of those images and tweets we'll see you next time here at the listening post